Welcome, friends, to the third in our series on wisdom, the gift of God. We've titled this series The Gift of God because wisdom is just that. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. If we have wisdom, it is a gift of God. I would go so far as to say, even if a person is not a Christian, yet they have wisdom, that is a common grace gift of God. Wisdom is a gift. And thankfully, we have opportunity to grow in wisdom, to gain wisdom, to search for and cry out for. James, uh, in his letter in chapter one says, if anyone lacks wisdom, especially in a trial, in a trouble, let him ask of God and God will give it generously without finding fault. That is our great hope that we can grow in wisdom. That's the purpose of this series. We want you to grow in wisdom. We want you to become wise women and men so that you might navigate God's world in a way that pleases God. All right, I'm going to pray real quick, ask for help, and then we're going to jump right in. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to be in your word again. Thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Father, we find truth and reality and grace and goodness and you in your word. Father, you have revealed yourself to us, and I I thank you for this revelation. We do not take it for granted, and I pray that now as we seek to be under your word, you would help us. Please give us help from your Holy Spirit. Uh, Light up what you have written. Make it um, be joyous to receive, and, and may you warm our affections for you through your word, and may it be a means of knowing you, and may we know how to live in a way that pleases you and in a way that is wise. May we become wise people. And as James has told us, Father, I ask that you would give us all wisdom tonight. Give us focus, give us attention, grip us, and may we all grow and be transformed and changed tonight. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Okay, let's get another definition. So we've been pouring out the definitions upon you. It's helpful often to get at what a word means by saying what it's not. So we're going to do like a reverse definition. Wisdom is not simplistic. Wisdom is not reductionistic. Wisdom is nuanced. Nuanced. So what does simplistic mean? Simplistic means to treat it, it's treating complex issues and problems as if they were much simpler than they really are. So wisdom is not simplistic. Wisdom doesn't treat complex issues and problems as if they were much simpler than they really are. We're talking about issues in your own personal life. You have issues. Anyone have issues? I have issues, okay? And there's massive issues in our society and in our world. I mean, issues. And to come at ourselves and to come at other people and to come at the issues in our culture and to come at world issues, we must not be simplistic. We must ask for wisdom and we must not also be reductionistic. What does that mean? To be reductionistic would be the practice of simplifying a complex idea, issue, condition, or the like, especially to the point of minimizing, obscuring, or distorting it. Okay? We often are reductionistic. We take very complex, very seismic things, and we bring them down to this very simplistic 
one reason definition and this explains everything and that's not often helpful for you for me for the world for society's issues now we could do this right now and say what's the problem with you what's the problem with me what's the problem with the world one word sin now that's true and here's what we want to do that we want to open that word up and not just leave it as a one word answer Sin has many dimensions, many, 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 many ways it works into our lives and into our world. People are very complex. You yourself know this, okay? We're going to be real specific about you uh, getting help to be wise and for you to be nuanced tonight. So that's what we're going to talk about. Um, Anyone around the turn of the new year make a resolve that I'm going to work out I'm going to eat better. I'm going to, anyone? Okay, one person's honest. Two people are honest. I see a couple heads shaking. Yeah, what many of us did around every January is we're like, man, this is the year. (laughs) This is the year. I'm going to get all the gear. And so you go and spend a, a whole paycheck, right? You get the protein powder. You get the gym membership. You get the Under Armour. You get the Nike. You get the kale. You get the spinach. And, and then you order a pizza, put on the workout gear, lay on the couch with your pizza and watch Netflix. And you're like, why? What's wrong with me? Right? You have issues. Right? And, and often we can't figure ourselves out. We, we need wise people and we ourselves need wisdom to even understand what's going on inside of us. Why am I the way I am? Anyone ever ask that question about yourself to yourself? I have. What's wrong with you, man? And you just want to slap yourself across the face. What is the matter? You have issues. And we want to be wise people who gain an understanding about how to understand ourselves and understand others, understand our our culture, and then understand our world. We want to be wise people. Now, we want to be nuanced. This is becoming one of my favorite words. I'm tempted to get it tattooed on my neck. I really am. Nuance, a subtle difference or distinction in expression, meaning, or response, or a small or subtle distinction. Okay? This is wisdom, I think. Nuance can, can unfold and unfold and unfold and unfold. And when we are simplistic and reductionistic, we boil it down to one small factor and we say, this is the issue, and it needs opened up with many things brought to the table to even begin to get an understanding. With people, with issues in your life, with issues in others' lives, with issues in the culture, and with issues in our world. So tonight, we're going to talk about nuance. The Proverbs is not a stranger to nuance at all. And I want to use a C.S. Lewis illustration to help open up what I'm talking about. C.S. Lewis has a brilliant uh, piece called Meditation in a Tool Shed. Anyone ever read that? Meditation in a tool shed. It is amazing. I'm just going to give you the first paragraph because I think it illustrates really well what we're talking about here. C.S. Lewis says, I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam not seeing things by it. That's a great line. I was seeing the beam, 
not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of the tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Yes. And often, we look at ourselves very simplistically, and we look at others very simplistically. We write people off. We write ourselves off. We say, I'm not going to ever change. And we, and we don't look along the beam with wisdom. We just look at it. Okay? And tonight, the Proverbs speaks really clearly to this. This is one of my favorite verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 26, 4 to 5. This is our main text for tonight. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Very next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, you have two verses side by side here that absolutely 100% contradict each other. Or do they? No, they don't. The Proverbs writer here is not a fool, and he puts these verses right next to each other to give you perspective, to give you nuance, to help you look at the beam, but then also look along the beam. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So quick answer, sometimes we should not answer a fool according to his folly. But verse 5 says sometimes we should answer a fool according to his folly. And here's the key. We need help to know when we should answer and when we should not answer. Because that could mean the difference for you of having a peaceful conversation from walking away with fruit, from walking away maybe you benefited something, or from walking away from a relationship completely. Because you were not wise in how you approached someone or an issue or something. Now let's define what a fool is. A fool is one who completely lacks understanding. In this context, it's someone who doesn't understand much. They're not nuanced. They're not wise. In fact, very specifically, this fool in this passage thinks he or she has all the answers. There's nothing you can tell this person because they already have omniscience. They know all there is to know. They understand the mysteries and they understand their own hearts and all hearts of all people. They understand all the complex issues of our culture and the world already. Now, Proverbs 12 would describe this fool. Proverbs 12, 15 to 16 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So you think you're right, but it's a rightness that is only right in your eyes. You look in the mirror and you say, yeah, I'm right. I know I'm right. But a wise man, we could say woman, listens to advice. Okay? Here's, here's the difference, friends. Are you a person who refuses to receive wisdom from other people? Or do you have it all figured out? 
Or will you only receive wisdom from certain people or in a certain context or only if they say it in a certain way or a wise person? Do we want to be wise? What should we do? We should listen to advice with wisdom. 16, the vexation, that means strong displeasure or annoyance, anger. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Now, this fool here can't control his or her anger. They, they just pop off. And you know instantly what is going on on the inside. Quick to anger. Probably not slow to speak. And the prudent person, that would be the wise one, is able to, by grace, ignore an insult. In other words, someone says something very hurtful to you, very purposeful, trying to hurt you, and you're like, I can let that bounce off me by grace. I'm not going to take that. Yeah, you threw that to me, but I'm not even catching it. You're handing that to me, I'm not taking it. The prudent person is able to ignore an insult and control their emotions, but a fool cannot, okay? So back to Proverbs 26, 4 to 5, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Now we're going to think about when is it not okay to answer a fool according to his folly? When is it not okay? Folly means this, lacking good sense. So the person you're talking to, you can tell, okay, this person doesn't have good sense. They're lacking good sense. They're lacking understanding. They're living out their lack of wisdom. And you don't answer them according to their lack of non-understanding. I'll illustrate this in just a moment. But let's look at this proverb. Proverbs 29.9. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, you're answering a fool according to his folly. The fool only rages and laughs and there is no quiet. How many of you have had that conversation? Yeah. And the proverb is saying, don't be that person. If, if they're so unteachable, so unreceiving, so hard that whatever you, you're trying to give them some kind of help, some kind of wisdom, it just bounces off like you have armor on, you don't answer a fool according to his folly. You say, okay, look, I love you. You're not ready to receive this. And you pray, God, help them to be able to receive some wisdom in the future. If a wise man or woman has an argument with a fool, this is what's going to happen. The fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. How about Proverbs 26, 4 to 5? Again, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Now, we must discern who we are dealing with. This is important. Who are we dealing with, and is it helpful or beneficial for you to answer them? Peter tells us in 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. That means Uh, as holy. That means put him up in your heart as the one who is supreme, who is the ruler. He's your Lord. He's not just the Lord, but he's your Lord. He's the one you bow the knee to. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, but will you do it now? And Peter's saying, do it now. Make him the Lord. Don't be the Lord of your own life, if you will. Don't be the ruler or the authority uh, that charts your own course through life. Always being prepared, so you're prepped, we're helping you to be prepped tonight, to do what? To make a defense, 
It's the word apologia that we get um, apologetics from. To anyone hmm, who asks for you for a reason, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter tells us that we should be prepared to make a defense or to give an answer. And we need to be careful when we are evangelizing, when we are defending the faith, who am I talking to right now? For you to understand the person that you're talking to is, I think, crucial to your being successful in conveying to them the truths of the Bible, the Christian worldview, the gospel, the good news. And we need to be able to read them, read their question as well, and then be able to answer with wisdom and, listen, with gentleness and respect. Like for many of us, it's hard to be gentle and respectful to other people, especially, this is, this is strange, but especially people that are close to us. You know what I mean? It, we often are the most aggressive, harsh, quick-tempered with the people we're, we're closest to, husbands, wives, children, co-workers, our, our nearest neighbors, and we, we're often able to quickly jump upon them, uh, but this is saying, man, with even with strangers or people who are asking you questions about your faith because you're living in such a way that would provoke questions, you need to do it with gentleness and respect, and I, I just want to plead with you guys also that, man, this is the Christian character, like gentleness and respectfulness. We should never be Christians who are rude and abrasive and, you know, we have the truth and you don't. This kind of arrogance that would think themselves better than other people. So Peter says we should be giving an answer, but here's the question we need to ask. Who am I talking to and how will my apologetic, how will my defense, how will my answer be best received? Here's an illustration, okay? When I was a brand new believer, I was evangelizing everybody who would listen to me. Okay? I, I would go to my old friend's parties and I was now the sober one, the only sober one. That's, exist, that's uh, the proof that God exists right there. Chris is the only sober one at the party. And I would begin to tell people the truths of the gospel. And, and man, you just heard the wildest things that people believed and the things they thought. And I remember I, I, was, I was in the garage with this guy and there was a group of three of us and this one guy was just being really loud and really just letting his ideas fly and they were crazy ideas and he was contradicting himself all over the place. And I was going at him and I began to get frustrated. And at, at one point, I just finally said to him, look man, I've studied the Bible. I've read it. I've even taught it. You know, and, and here's what happened. You know what happened? I was answering a fool according to his folly, and guess what happened to me? I became like him. You know why? Because he was appealing to his own authority, and I ended up appealing to my own authority. I started appealing to my credentials as a Christian. I've read the Bible. I've studied the Bible. I, I became just like the person I was talking to. That ever happened to anyone? 
where, where all of a sudden you're arguing with someone and all of a sudden you take on the very characteristic of the person you're arguing with. And this proverb is helping us and saying, don't answer the fool according to his folly. Why? Because you will become like him yourself in that apologetic, in that defense, in that conversation. We need to be wise about who we're talking to and when should we not speak. There are times that we should not speak. How about Proverbs 29, 11? It says this, a fool gives full vent to his spirit. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. I love that. So you want to be a wise person? This is what it will look like. You will be able to quietly hold back when it's appropriate what's going on inside of you. But a fool gives full vent to what's going on inside of them. And sometimes it can happen so fast, can it? Anyone know what it's like to go from zero to 60 emotionally? And, and oh God, help us not to open our mouths when inside we are, we are at 60, right? Oh God, help us to just keep what's going on inside, inside, please. I know out of the heart my mouth is about to speak, but let my heart stay inside, <laughs> Let, let me not speak what's going on inside. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man or woman quietly holds it back. So I tried to re- reason with this guy repeatedly over and over, and he kept going off the track. He wasn't following my logic, and finally I became like him and, and appealed to my own authority. Don't you know who I am? Like, I've studied, man. Should listen to me. And I became a fool myself. But I couldn't see that at the time. I, I had to look back at my foolishness and see that I was a fool. Okay. Sometimes we must answer a fool according to his folly. All right. So now we're at 20, 26.5. Sometimes we must answer a fool according to their folly. Why? Because they'll be wise in their own eyes. And you see, sometimes somebody is speaking in such a way where it is clear that they are foolish and they are maybe influencing others, and you do need to speak up with gentleness and respect, and you do need to answer them in their folly. And this is where we need to grow in wisdom to know, when should I answer, when should I not answer? Now, Michael Ramsett of RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, he's an apologist. He said this, and this is such a crucial sentence. Listen closely. He said, it's not about giving answers to other people's questions. It's about questioning other people's answers or questioning the question itself. Let me say that again. It's not about giving answers to other people's questions. It's about questioning other people's answers. or questioning the question itself. That's helpful. We need to get so wise to read people. Who am I talking to? What is their worldview? Where are they coming from? Do you mean this by what you're saying? Sometimes we're using the same words and we mean total opposites. Let me, let me, here's what I hear you asking. Are you asking this? No, that's not at all what I'm asking. Okay, what are you asking? So that I might actually answer the question you have. What answer would you give for that? Is sometimes a really good response. 
right? So they ask you a question, you ask them the question, well, what do you think? And then you question their answer because you see what they're thinking. And then sometimes you really need to question the question itself because it's not a valid question. And you need to understand when is a question not a good question. I mean, Michael Ramsey said this. It's, it's like asking, um, does your mother know that you're stupid? If you answer yes, then your mother knows you're stupid. If you answer no, she doesn't know you're stupid. You're stuck. It's a, it's a trick question. And we need to understand the questions and we need to understand people's answers and how they're giving answers. Now, I want to quickly look at Jesus who lived out this proverb to the highest degree. I mean, Jesus was the master of reading people and situations and what's going on with fantastic wisdom and then asking the right question every time. You ever notice that? How many times does Jesus answer a question with a question? Almost always. And, and when I was a brand new Christian reading the gospels, I was so confused. I was always like, Jesus, why don't you ever answer the question? And now I understand a little bit better that he was actually getting at what was going on underneath the question. But I was so confused reading the gospels as a newer Christian. Like, why, why does he always either dodge the question or go around the question or he answers the question with a question or he, he says something totally irrelevant to the question? And I'm like, is G, what is he doing? But now I understand a little better because I've grown a little bit. God has grown me and I understand he was being wise. He was being nuanced. So let's look at one of these instances in Mark 2, 5 to 9. Jesus saw their faith. Now this jumps into a, a, a situation where four friends had a paralytic friend and they wanted Jesus to heal him. But the, the room that Jesus was teaching in, we think it was Peter's house was so packed that they couldn't make it in. So they go up on the roof. The roof is able to be torn apart. So they tear the roof apart and they let the paralytic down by ropes right in front of Jesus. You can imagine Peter looking up at his roof like, what is going on, man? Like my whole life is getting wrecked by you, Jesus. Even my house. And Jesus sees this situation. He sees their faith. What does that mean? Now, friends, I, I, I attack your definition of faith all the time, very purposefully. Faith is not a force that you tap into to get your prayers answered. Faith always has an object, and faith always lands somewhere, somewhere. Now, these men who were lowering their friend down had faith in the healer, not in their own faith. So when they look at Jesus, or when Jesus looks at these men, he, he sees, oh man, they are proving that they really think I can do something about this such that they're willing to tear Peter's roof apart. He sees that they think he can do something. Their faith is landing on Jesus, the healer. They prove it so much so that they begin to rip a roof apart. I mean, that probably could get you killed. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes, they were the ones who would copy the Bibles. They were the scholars. were sitting there questioning, look at this, in their hearts, not out loud, but just having these internal thoughts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins, right? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? What was Jesus saying here when he was saying, your sins are forgiven? What was he claiming? To be God. Only God can forgive sins. They got the picture. And it's clear that he's a paralytic. Why did he go at the sin issue? We'll deal with that in a second. Why does this man speak like that? You just see their, their internal body temperature rising. Their heart starts beating. They start having all these internal questions come up. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Jesus reads their mind. He reads what's going on inside. He listens to the question that they haven't even spoken. That's beautiful. And he says, why do you question these things in your heart? He asks the question. And you could just see these guys like, oh, how does he know what's going on in my heart? How does he know I was just asking questions? And Jesus is seeing right through these guys by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is easier to say? Now look, two questions arose from their question. Look, why do you question these things in your heart? Question mark. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Question, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Question mark. So Jesus, in response to their internal question, asks two questions. He's getting them to think. This is what we must do, friends. We must get really good at seeing what's going on inside of people's hearts. They will reveal it to you by speaking from the heart, the mouth speaks. And if you get good at understanding not only the questions, but the answers, you will be able to get underneath and into their questions and give them good answers by you asking them questions. By you asking them good questions. You get them to come to their own conclusions. But that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, rooted in Daniel chapter 7, the, the one who would receive power and authority in a kingdom, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So let, let's stop here. Jesus is saying, but that you may know. Now I'm going to prove something to you. What am I going to prove? I'm going to prove to you right now that I am the son of man from Daniel chapter seven. And I'm going to prove to you that I have the authority on earth right here and now to forgive sins. How are you going to prove that? I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. And Jesus is saying, that's right. And I have the authority to also deal with the sin problem that caused in the first instance, this man to be a paralytic. What do you mean in the first instance? I mean, if sin had never entered the world, there would be no such thing as paralytics. There'd be no such thing as blasphemous thoughts towards God. There'd be no reason for Jesus to have to do apologetics this way, answering their unspoken questions. But we also know that it is harder for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven because what it would cost him. It's going to cost him separation from his father. It's going to cost him the wrath of God. And so in one sense, it is much harder for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven. 
than to say, pick up your mat and walk. But Jesus wants to prove a point and he's getting them to think and now he's forcing the conclusion on them. But that you may know that I am the son of man and that I have authority to forgive sins on earth, pick up your bed and walk. And he walks out, proof. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let my actions speak louder than my words right now. Get up and walk. Authority, power. Here's another one, Mark 4, 37 to 41. So Jesus is in the middle of a storm. He's beat from ministry. He is so tired because he's been doing so much ministry. He is asleep on a pillow. The storm is raging. The storm is taking the boat under. And the disciples say, Master, they ask a question, don't you care? We're about to die. Don't you care? And he gets up and rebukes the storm. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. So at this time, the boat is filling up, and the waves are filling the boat up, and Jesus is asleep in the stern on a cushion. (laughs) And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? He asked the question. And we... I'm sorry. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And see, he said to them, why are you so afraid? So here's the reason I brought this up. They ask him a question. Don't you care that we are perishing? We're about to die. You're sleeping. The evidence for us is you don't care about us. You don't care that we're about to die. You're obviously not a caring Messiah because you're asleep and we're dying. And he gets up, proves that he cares by saying, be still. He flexes his authority again, not only to forgive sins, not only to heal, but also to control nature with a word. Be still. And it goes glass calm, mirror calm. And then he asks them a question in response to their question. Why were you so afraid? You see, it's a faith check is what he's doing. He's trying to get them to think, why were you so afraid? And for us, we would be like, it's obvious why they're afraid. The boat was filling up. It was starting to sink. The sea is raging. I'd be afraid too. But Jesus is trying to say, don't you realize who is in the boat with you right now? And here's the thing. We go through the storms of life and we're like, don't you care, Jesus? Don't we do this? Don't you care? And, and Jesus is saying, why are you afraid? Like, didn't I tell you I'll never leave you or forsake you? Didn't I tell you I'm with you always, even to the end of the age? And, and here he proves his power and his care by calming the storm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? And then he asked them another question. Have you still no faith? Okay, again, he's not saying to them, if you had faith, you could say to the storm, be still, and it would be still. Where's your faith? He's not saying that. What he's saying here is, don't you trust me? Don't you know who I am yet? Don't you realize who is in the boat with you? And he's getting them to think. And what was their response to this all happening? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? Did even the wind and the sea obey him? They, they still don't understand who they're dealing with. 
And they are terrified at the power and authority of this one in the boat. And Jesus is calmly, graciously getting them to think about who he is and will they trust him. And he does it over and over and over. But I want you to see, he answers their question with two questions. And he's getting them to think. We need to get good at doing this as well. One more. This is the last one. I know it's long. Luke 10, 25 to 30. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, now lawyers are good at arguing, aren't they? Lawyers are good at asking tricky questions. Lawyers are good at trapping you in your words. These lawyers specifically were masters of the law, the Old Testament law. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A question is asked. He said to him, what is written in the law? Question mark. He answers the question with a question. How do you read it? Second question. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love it. Yeah, you're right. Just go do that and you'll live. And you can tell he's convicted because of what he does next. But he, verse 29, desiring to justify himself. We do this all the time, don't we? We come up with all these brilliant reasons why we're not to blame and why there's clauses and why this doesn't apply. And we justify ourselves. We do it to our own selves when we're thinking and we do it to other people when we're arguing with them and they're pointing out stuff to us. Justify himself. He said this to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, and he's going to tell a story. I love it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and and departed. So a man is robbed, and he's left for dead, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, or that road, and when he saw him, he passed on by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus asks a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I love it. What Jesus is doing here is he is reading this guy wanting to justify himself. He understood what was under the question. Okay? The guy asks a question, who's my neighbor? And Jesus reads right into that question. Oh, you're trying to justify yourself. I see. Okay, let me tell you a story. And he sets the story up in such a way that he makes the outcast, the Samaritan, the Jews did not want to associate with the Samaritans. 
They were the people on the wrong side of the tracks. They were the outsiders. And he makes the Samaritan the hero who helps and is the good guy. I love it. I love what Jesus does here. And the two good guys in the Jewish culture who would have been the Levite and the priest, they're the ones that ignore. And Jesus is saying, so your good guys ignored and weren't a good neighbor, and the bad guy who you guys despised was the good neighbor. He actually forced this lawyer who knew the law so well to say, the good guy was the one you hate. I love it. And we could go into this story with great depth, but we don't have time. My point is, he got this lawyer in such a situation where the lawyer was forced to give an answer that he despised. And I don't think Jesus was going, ha. Huh. You know, Jesus wasn't rejoicing with pride and arrogance in the way he just confounded this man. He wasn't rejoicing at his power of argument and asking questions and his masterful storytelling. He wasn't walking around like, you know, I am the man. This is the danger for us because when we get good at asking questions and we get good at using logic and we get good at reading people's questions, the temptation for us is to become the fool who is arrogant. And Peter is saying, I'm so glad that he added this gentleness and respect He didn't say with force of logic and with powerful arguments and with pride. No, he said with gentleness and with respect, you are to answer people and to question people and question their answers and question their questions. Gentleness and respect. And and friends, I would plead with you, please pray that God makes you respectful of other people and gentle, humble and lowly of heart. Please Because if we're going to get good at helping other people, it's not helpful when you're prideful. It's not helpful. You will be doing the very things I'm asking you to do here out of pride. And you're starting with the foundation of sin. So what do you need to be doing regularly? You need to regularly be saying, God, crush my pride, smash my pride, help me to be humble, help me to be gentle, help me to be respectful. Now, I want to move to Jesus being the one who lived out Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 with great power. I mean, with massive power. Because we just saw him answering a fool according to his folly over and over again, didn't we? But did you know that Jesus also did not answer fools according to their folly? Did you know that? So Isaiah 53, 7 says this. This is the clearest prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You remember when Jesus was being arrested, he was on trial, he was being falsely accused, and the high priest brought all these false witnesses in, and and they're accusing him, and Jesus is just silent. He's not answering the fool according to their folly. And the high priest gets so frustrated that he says this, have you no answer to make? 
What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. He knew when to not talk. And you remember when the Roman soldiers are beating the crap out of him and they're saying, they blindfold him and they ask him, prophesy who struck you. You realize Jesus had the power to just wave his hand and all of them drop dead instantly. Just take their life. And, And yet he just is silent. He's just taking the beating quietly. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is just getting questioned over and over and over. And then finally on the cross, you remember the question that Jesus himself asks. Or how about this one? You know, he's on the cross hanging. He saved others. Let's see if he'll save himself. In other words, Jesus, you're going you're gonna to save yourself? And Jesus on the cross, finally, he asks the question of God. He says, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? And we know what was going on there, don't we? What was going on there was Jesus was, listen, taking our foolishness upon himself, taking our arrogance upon himself, taking our pride upon himself, taking our doing it our own way upon himself and taking God's wrath for that and all our sin upon himself. And it cost him being abandoned by God. And the last question he asks before he dies is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And friends, this is our entrance into wisdom. We, we must start with realizing that we are not wise in and of ourselves. We are fools. We are ones who have gone our own way. We have plowed our own path. We have thought ourselves to know best what is for us. And we have taken on the title, whether we would admit it or not, of small g God. And Jesus takes the punishment for that on the cross, that you might go free. And then not only does he just let you off and take your punishment, he offers you wisdom. He offers you his spirit, which is the wonderful counselor. He offers you his spirit who is the one who gives us the wisdom that is ours to gain if we will but cry out for it and search for it and seek it as hidden treasure. Friends, we can have wisdom because Jesus took our place for our foolishness. It was an exchange of our foolishness for his wisdom and perfection. And now you have the opportunity to grow in grace and to grow in wisdom. So my plea for all of you tonight is, have you started there? Like, don't go after all that we just talked about if you haven't started here with Jesus on the cross in your place as a substitute. Can you admit to being a fool? Can you admit, yes, I've been a fool and I'm still in so many ways foolish. And know that Jesus paid the price for even your present folly. Your present folly. It's not all taken out of you yet. It's not all taken out of me yet. I'm growing. And I'm thankful to be growing. But he has paid for present folly. And listen, he's paid for future folly. Isn't that beautiful? 
that our Savior saves us from ourselves, our own foolishness that would kill us if it weren't for him stepping in and being killed in our place. And friends, I, I want to now pray for us and ask us or ask God to help us to not only appreciate the great substitute that Jesus performed for us, this great substitution, but then to help us to be wise. I want to pray for all of you and for me that we would not be lacking in wisdom. We would not be lacking in nuance. We would learn how to um, ask good questions and question questions and question answers and question the questioner. Father, help us, please. Please. 